Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 99. We're approaching the date of Operation Hooper, but first a bit of bad news for the SADF regarding disease. The heavy rains through November and December of 1987 had created a perfect breeding ground for the flies and mosquitoes that carried hepatitis and malaria. This was impacting the morale, let alone the operational capacity of the army. The replacement troopies were on their way by the 19th of November, but they had to receive additional training on the border before they were let loose on Fapla. Fapla too was rearming itself, and new recruits were also arriving at 21 Brigade and the other units stationed around Quito Quanavali. There was a real expectation building on both sides that something significant was going to happen over the next few months. This kind of war couldn't continue. It had changed from a low-intensity guerrilla war ostensibly fought through Ovambaland to a conventional war fought exclusively in southern Angola. The troops arriving to replace the national servicemen had no idea what they were in for. This was an old trick of the SADF. Most of these men only realized they were going into Angola once they were inside the country. The law in South Africa stated they had to volunteer to fight outside of the country, but the SADF top brass had got around that by asking if the men were prepared to volunteer once they'd crossed the border. Had these troops not volunteered, in inverted commas, they would have left their brothers to fight with fewer hands. So it was a contorted and rather malicious psychological trick these blokes played on the minds of the youngsters, most of them 18 or 19 years old. So the men who volunteered to join 61 Mech were told they were going to end up at its HQ near Rundu, and then realized they were being driven in the opposite direction, finally crossing the Kavanga River with UNITA soldiers armed with AK-47s welcoming them. That was a shock. Take Clive Holt, for example, an NCO who thought he'd be spending the second year of his service in some kind of office in a Vumberland. After bouncing through the bush on the back of a truck for a few kilometers, I noticed a very large river ahead of us, he writes in his book, At Thy Call. We were heading straight for the water, and thanks to my school geography lessons, I realized that this was the river that formed the border between Southwest Africa and Angola. Indeed. Once across the river, he was told he'd be fighting alongside Janita, and he was even more shocked. An uncomfortable silence descended on us as we crossed the bridge and entered a foreign land. They had been misled, he wrote, and the men had a sheer sense of disbelief to the extent to which they'd been deceived. Holt then realized that quite a few of his colleagues had been listed AWOL after the last pass. They must have known more than he did. The SADF believed that the National Servicemen would be a source of leaks, so kept all information strictly need to know. But this had led to situations where many soldiers immediately distrusted their officers, who'd obviously known, and where they understood South African law, they knew this was not ethical. Too late. Once they were in Angola, they could not let their brothers down by backing out. There would have been a gap in their defensive capacity. They would have weakened their own forces. This is what Pretoria was relying on. Months of brainwashing and mental preparedness about doing anything for your buddy, working like a single organism, a military machine to overcome the enemy. But this was not a total lie. The troops would be based south of the Kavango or Kuneni rivers, and they were trained for weeks in conventional warfare, and by then most began to guess what was going on. They could have left a little earlier. Why bush orientation was so important was not explained, However, had the soldiers sat back and thought about it, it was kind of obvious. Still, deception was going to cause morale issues. 
Dealing with the flyers was one thing, but it was the piss moth that really made most shudder. The large moth would settle on the inside of tents at night, and if disturbed, it would fly around spraying some kind of liquid, and if this hit your skin, nasty blisters would form. On the 28th of November, these 61 mech replacements headed back from the bush to Rundu, then boarded a plane for Mavinga deep inside Angola. Then it was onto trucks once more, another 10-kilometre drive through the bush, which was wet and tropical. Rain was falling, and they set up their shelters. Nothing happened that night. The next morning, flyers were everywhere. This was their future, underground sheets and ponchos tied together, living on the sand. A few of the troops apparently went into shock there and then. Some were flown back to Rundu when it appeared they were suicidal. It was the next day, the 29th of November, that they took delivery of the vehicles from the outgoing national servicemen heading home for Christmas. They were met by men who had not shaved for months, whose clothes were ragged, whose eyes were wild. The rattles were battered and needed fixing. The next few days were spent fixing these and counting and loading ammunition. By the first week of December, many of the rattles were back to working order, and the men began to learn how to interact with Unita, trading cigarettes and rat packs. Mavinga used to be a nice place. By this stage of the border war, it had been shot up. Around the town was a jungle. It looked almost like a tropical rainforest at the end of the rainy season. Soon they began to move north towards Quito Guanavari and into range of the MiG-21s and 23 fighter aircraft. When these were spotted, radios would blare with the call, Victor, Victor, and alarm that the MiGs were around. Feyander lekker vliegtuig, enemy aircraft. From now on, these troops were going to hear that alarm call of Victor, Victor, at least once a day for the next four months. Back in Pretoria, General Kat Liebenbach issued the formal operational instructions for Hooper, lifting the veil, and what the strategy was going to be going forward. Their basic aim was simple. The ground taken should not be lost, and the enemy should be destroyed east of Quito River. The officers were also briefed that if Quito Guanavali could be occupied, it should be, and that the SADF should stay and fight in the area until the enemy was no longer a threat to UNITA. Some plans were drawn up by 61 Max Paul Fouchier, and Yanni Heldnais were shown these on the 23rd of December. UNITA would carry on attacking 25 Brigade as a diversion to the south, and Harry 59 Brigade in the centre. That was Fapler's outer defensive line. Then Forsyth would attack 21 Brigade to the north, while 61 Mech moved in from the south, protecting their flank. Then 61 Mech would slip between 59 and 21 Brigades and advance directly on 16 Brigade in the second tier of Fapler's defensive ring. The South Africans would then swing right or north over the Quito River Bridge, or perhaps wheel south to help UNITA overcome 59 and 21 Brigades. This was a calculated gamble, and Yanni Heldnes was not a gambler. He rejected the plan, preferring to focus on one enemy brigade, while UNITA should lead the fighting. The generals were terrified of the casualty rate, and the new plan was drawn up focusing only on 21 Brigade in the north of Fapla's defensive line. First UNITA would attack, then Forsyth with both Ulifant squadrons would weigh in, Fapla would withdraw, UNITA would occupy the positions, Forsyth would withdraw, covered by 61 Mech in the south. A very simple, straightforward operation. As these new troops prepared for the first real fight, to the north, the SADF had been softening up the Quito River Bridge. Each G5 was firing up to 200 shells a day, concentrating on the bridge 
and Fapla brigades dug into defensive positions on the east bank of the Quito River. The guns pounded the bridge so heavily that trucks were sometimes knocked right off the structure, while in other moments the external drums strapped to the T-54 tanks were set ablaze. By Christmas of 1987, the bridge supports had been so badly damaged that tanks and heavier vehicles could no longer cross. Trucks were offloaded on the west bank. Troops would then carry the ammunition and food across. Then the trucks would be reloaded on the east bank. But the supplies were still flowing despite the SA Air Force and artillery attempts to leave the road impassable. As the SADF prepared for Operation Hooper, the SA Air Force was testing a new top-secret weapon on the Buccaneer known as the H-2, built by Kentron, a subsidiary of Arms Corps. It was a 460-kilogram pre-fragmented folding-winged glide bomb controlled by a TV link between the bomb and the aircraft. It was a simple form of missile with a guidance unit in its nose that had its own power generator, driven by a small impeller at the back of the bomb. An impeller is something like a rotating component of a centrifugal pump. A comms pod was carried under the opposite wing of the Buccaneer, which set up the TV link, and the weapon could be controlled after launch by its parent aircraft. What that meant is that the plane could launch the bomb then turn 180 degrees to escape the intense anti-aircraft fire descending as it went. The glide distance of the H-2 was phenomenal, up to 60 kilometers, depending on the head or tailwind, and usually released at around 30,000 feet at almost the speed of sound, Mach 0.8. After release, the bomb would drop with folded wings, and a short distance away, the wings would open. It would slow down to 250 knots and then head towards the target. It was supposed to be accurate, to within three meters. Back inside the Buccaneer, the navigator controlled the H2 with the joystick, some control buttons, and a mini green and white TV screen. It would communicate back to the plane using various sounds, and the flight was tracked by a tape recorder, while intercom conversations were also recorded, along with a TV picture from the camera in the bomb's nose. If there was an issue, a second buccaneer could control the bomb. This plane was often at a much lower level, far from the anti-aircraft high-threat environment. But try as they might, the SAF Force never managed to completely destroy Quito Bridge, hitting it once in a blow I'll explain in a minute. By now, the area east of the Quito River and the Quito Bridge was known as the land beyond the end of the earth. It had been so severely damaged and pockmarked by high explosives. One recce was based close to the bridge, relaying information to the SA Air Force, as well as directing the incessant bombardments with the G-5 guns south of the Mianay River. Artillery Commander Colonel Jean Lasper had received orders to regard the bridge as a high-priority target, but it wasn't easy to hit. It was narrow, a single-lane bridge. Some of the G-5s were moved to align with the bridge, and they hit the structure repeatedly, but it did not collapse. On the 3rd of January 1988, Rim de Yaga's team from one recce was watching the Quito Bridge from a few kilometers away. They weren't told why it was so important. Another attack by two buccaneers, supported by four Mirage F1AZs, was on the way with two H2 bombs. After aborting the first mission due to MiG-23s lurking about, Major Picky Siebritz and Major Neil Napier, his navigator, were tasked with releasing and controlling the air-to-ground weapon. A second buccaneer accompanied Siebritz with Major Giel van der Berg, the pilot, and Captain Peter Kirkpatrick, the navigator. They had one H-2 on board. 
They flew in extremely low, around 50 feet. Then, at what was known as the pop-up point, the planes shot up to 21,000 feet, approaching the bridge from the east. 37 kilometers from the target, Napier launched one of the H-2s, then watched it on his little screen on the panel in front of him. After negotiating a few clouds, he directed the H-2 into the ground on the southern side of the bridge. Suddenly, Siebritz caught sight of two MiG-23s en route from Menong to Quitoquanavali as they rolled out of the attack and headed south. The MiG radar screens picked up the buccaneers, but for some reason, the MiGs broke off and flew on to Menong. On the ground, one Rekis Rim de Yacha and Justin Fermark and their teams were gobsmacked, watching on telescopes and binoculars. There was a huge splash at the bridge. Water shot high into the air, and a 20-meter span disappeared. Fermark spoke about this years later, still impressed. The water mushroomed high into the air. When the mist cleared, they saw that part was missing. It lay there as if a martial arts master had hit it above with his hand and broke it downwards, jackknifing into the water, he said. To celebrate, Fermark decided to open a bottle of his raisin beer. The other had exploded already, causing some disquiet when it disintegrated one night. After debriefing, one recce forward observation team returned to their position north of the Quartier River and were in place, ready for the next attack on Fapla's 21 Brigade, set for the 13th of January. They were lying in their layout positions directly east of Fapla's 16 Brigade, gathering intelligence about the size of the brigade and their position and their movements. The Rekis began constructing dummy artillery emplacements as a decoy, hoping the MiG-23 and Su-22 pilots would attack. Lying in wait was the Rekki team armed with an SA-7, alongside UNITA troops armed with a fearsome Stinger surface-to-air missiles. All the while, the new 61 mech troops continued to train, readying for the upcoming operation. They of course had no idea what the plan was. All they knew, day and night, maneuvers were being carried out. Back at the Quito River Bridge, one Rekis Rim de Yaja and his team spotted a number of Cubans walking from the structure in a southerly direction. As they lay watching proceedings, a G5 shell landed in the water near these Cubans, blowing one of the men's legs right off. The others ran away. The injured man beckoned for help. They rushed back, began dragging him off the bridge. But in a terrible moment for these Cubans, a second shell fell directly on them. They were all killed. It was moments like these that were going to lead to a significant change with regards to Fidel Castro and Havana. He'd had enough. His men and women were dying like flies, and he had nothing to show for it. A few days before, in the afternoon of Monday, 29th December, Major Robert Trautmann, who was focusing on 21 Brigade along the Guatia River, was surprised to see a big enemy infantry contingent crossing the river from north to south. He was one of the forward observation post members monitoring 21 Brigade soldiers and had called down G5 hits on Fapla as they walked to the river to collect water in buckets. It was close to a spot where he had brought in a massive strike on Fapla troops only a few days before. Now the Pretoria Regiment Tank Squadron had been moved up so that its 105mm guns could support the G5s and 81mm mortars. The latest infantry contingent movement was an advance guard of 300 members of 2-1 Brigade Battalion, which had infiltrated north of Quartier. Neither UNITA nor the SADF had detected this movement, but the artillery observer Trautmann was alert. 
He called in G5 airburst shells, hitting the contingent. Dozens were killed. Then a day later on the 30th, an even larger group of men began to cross the Kwatir River at precisely the same point. This defied logic. They must have known what was waiting for them. Troutman had his binoculars focused on this latest group of Fapla until they were strung out across the open plain ahead of him, then called in 155mm and 127mm shells from the G5s and mobile rocket launchers, the Valkyries. By now the bodies were scattered across the open ground, then a thunderstorm broke. When it cleared a short while later, a third group of Fapla appeared to be making the crossing. Another bombardment by the G5s stopped them. But when night fell, the rest of the brigade began to move forward as the South Africans fired phosphorus flares to keep them under scrutiny. Dozens more died that night. By now, the SADF was also dropping pamphlets in an attempt at demoralizing the Angolan army, but some UNITA troops pointed out that many of the men fighting against the SADF were actually illiterate. Psychological warfare teams headed north, cutting down trees using chainsaws, hoping to persuade 21 Brigade that an SADF unit was going to use the wood to build another bridge across the Kwatir River, perhaps to the north. The SAA force continued to strike 21 Brigade, but was now finding the going really difficult. Apart from the odd buccaneer success at the bridge, the Mirages could not spend much time overhead flying for 40 minutes from Grootfontein, 500 kilometers away. They couldn't use their afterburners to get out of trouble unless it was critical, which meant they were sitting ducks for the MiGs had they hung around. Facing them were more than 30 MiG-23s and 21s based at Menong, only 180 kilometers away, nine minutes from Quetta Quanavali. They had 45 minutes of fuel to burn over the target. Adding to this discomfort was the incredible array of radar types the Angolans could use. The barlocks, spoon rests, early warning flat faces, side nets, odd pairs, squad eyes, and thin skins, along with second or third line radar as well. As you know by now, the East Germans were masters at this form of warfare and in control of this electronic equipment. North of the Chambinga River, things got even worse. This was known as the Red Radar Zone, which meant the Mirages and Buccaneers would pop up on the East German radar screens from 7,500 meters up all the way down to 50 meters. There was literally nowhere to hide. They were backed up by SAM-8s, 13s, 14s and 16 missile systems. But the SA Air Force had one major advantage that they used repeatedly, their training. Fapla's reliance on a rigid Soviet doctrine meant they were hamstrung when it came to initiative. When the SA Air Force pilots approached a target, they were operating almost entirely independently, whereas the Angolan Air Force pilots were micromanaged. As they approached the target, Menong-based controllers would order them to turn, to hold, to descend, to hold steady, then to drop their bombs. Sixty sorties a day were being flown, but their successes were limited to half a dozen incidents in the entire 23-year war. On the ground, though, Fapla morale was holding. It was the South Africans who appeared to be suffering from months of frustration. By now, the Fapla artillery had become adept at moving around. They were highly disciplined, trained by Russians and Cubans. The M46 big guns, the 130mm, delivered a 33-kilogram shell more than 25 kilometers away, 10 less than the South African G5, but they had more of them. The highly manoeuvrable D30, 122mm field guns lobbed 22kg shells 21 kilometers. The Stalin organs, 
the BM-21s firing volleys of 78-kilogram, 122-millimeter rockets over 20 kilometers. This was beginning to look more and more like the Western Front. Trenches were getting deeper, artillery barrages were a daily grind, and the SADF still did not attack. Every day that Papla prepared was a day longer the South Africans would regret. There were moments of macabre relief. On the 2nd of January 1988, for example, Forsai was moving into position for Hooper, north of the Quartier River, when seven MiG-21s shrieked in overhead, bombing the area. One of the bombs fell straight onto a Forsai lager alongside a 10-ton water tanker. Forsai's Sergeant Major Jacques Davet radioed the driver and received no answer, then rushed to where the bomb had exploded. There was the driver, standing under the holes in the bowser, stripped semi-naked, taking a shower. The shrapnel had punctured the water truck, and the driver said he didn't want the precious liquid to go to waste. D-Day for the attack changed to the 5th of January, but this passed once more because, unlike earlier operations, the SADF needed low cloud and rain to keep the MiGs away. That was a reversal of fortune and outlines just how the failure to control the air war was beginning to have a knock-on effect. By now, the SADF top brass had also become totally and utterly obsessed by what they called psychological action. It was the Civil Cooperation Bureau time, CCB, in South Africa, a form of Gestapo and KGB mixed with a distinctive blend of post-Brudebont mania. A kind of moral madness had crept into the halls of the Union buildings, and the malevolent, poisonous paranoia of fighting a war for decades had finally led to some seriously unhinged individuals being thrust forward. The SADF was a professional organization, but these were rank amateurs who spent more time conjuring torture in the offices than actually fighting on the felt, and they had seized control of the system during these final days of war. This was not good news for the South Africans fighting in Angola, as you're going to hear. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, fast pay. Thank you.